0: Welcome to the Unplanned Show, where we explore the impact of disruption, strategies for transforming how your teams spend their time with respect to problems, and emerging trends that are changing the nature of problems and how we manage them. I'm your host, Dormain Drewitz, and these episodes are broadcasted live on most Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific time on PagerDuty's LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitch channels please leave a review and feel free to send any feedback to community-team at pagerduty.com. With me today, I have, and guest I'm super excited to have on, James Urquhart, who he and I worked together back at Pivotal and VMware, and the author of Flow Architectures, published by O'Reilly. So before we get into it with James, I'm just going to quickly give a heads up on upcoming episodes. Next week, we will have Mitra Goswami, who is a Patriotity Senior Director of Data Science on. And then the following week, we'll have Donnie Burkholz on. And he and I were catching up earlier this month about kind of bridging ITIL and DevOps. Uh, so that's an interesting topic. With that, James, welcome.
1: Well, thank you very much, Amanda. I'm really excited to be on the show and talk with you today.
0: James and I obviously knew each other, but it was at Glucon earlier this year uh, where you were giving a talk on flow architectures. And besides the night of the Roxbury reference, which was deeply <laughs> appreciated, it got a lot of wheels turning for me uh, just sitting where I am now with PagerDuty and thinking about resilience. But let's sort of start at the beginning and just kind of level set with listeners in the audience around. What was the big aha moment for you when kind of like all the research that went into flow architectures that sort of baseline for people to be thinking about how should they be thinking about what is a flow architecture and and how does that connect to maybe things they're already doing today but maybe some of the things that they're not doing today
1: that's a great question so so i have you know 30 year career plus career in distributed systems and And I think about halfway through it, maybe even a little bit less than that, I discovered um, some really good books on uh, complex adaptive systems and sort of the way systems work and systems thinking. And uh, so I have always kind of looked at the problem of distributed systems development, not as a mechanical problem, but as a systems problem. And increasingly, one of the aspects of that is is when systems have a resource that must flow to the agents in the system, you you have a sort of a natural evolution of the paths that those things take. And by the way, they're very consistent. There's a gentleman named Jeffrey West who works at the Santa Fe Institute who wrote a book called Scale. And in that book, he points out that these systems, large-scale adaptive systems that have flow... Tend to evolve very much in the same way. So if you look at a tree, you get a you know you get a, a trunk and limbs and branches and leaves. You look at the human body, you have sort of the core arteries and veins and and sort of major blood vessels, and then that goes out to smaller and smaller blood vessels until you get to the capillaries. You look at cities, you have freeway systems that sort of carry the majority of the a large scale traffic that has to move around, but then that all kind of gets distributed out to, to you know major service streets and then to, to neighborhoods. And you know, the economy there's not dumb just the flow of money, right? There's a million examples of this where, you know, basically the math of this generates these common patterns. And so as I'm thinking about data and the movement of data in distributed systems, I started thinking about, well, we, you know, we've seen that pattern to a certain extent. Um, We have large-scale data centers where the majority of data is stored. Uh, Now public clouds out there as well kind of fall into that category. So the movement of data, the generation of that data, storage of that data, and the movement of that data to where it's needed is sort of in a similar pattern today. You may break things out to the edge, but you're breaking out pieces to the edge in order to allow that edge location to distribute it further to terminals or whatever it may be. And anyway, all of that comes down to, you know, one of the things that is not happening yet, but is increasingly important in, in the internet as a whole is the real-time movement of data, is the flow of data from where it has the highest potential value to all of the places where it generates appropriate value, for the organization that owns and generates the data or the person the individual and that's a whole debate that can be had but and and to those that can pro- provide some value around that data and so there's a lot of things that happen over the course of of extended periods of time extended periods of time is getting shorter and shorter but we're still talking about you know in measured in days or or many many hours and so i i started when, as i was thinking about that problem to kind of wrap the thought, I, I, I very much was like, well, what would break the flow of data? What would make the flow of data to those things of value easier? And I realized we already sort of have that within distributed systems, within an organization, when you have event-driven or push-style data trans- transportation. And so as I did some research into it, I, did, I discovered that there are no standards today for that there's no standards for the interfaces or for the protocols that are general standards but all of the all the all of the influences necessary to, to push us in that direction are falling into place very quickly so the, the, the commonality of the clouds and the services we're using in the clouds the commonality of the both the, the dist- distribution of data through messaging and the Um, the consumption of that data or storage of that data and the the techniques used for that are are becoming very well known and very kind of commoditized. So the idea that we could have standard interfaces comes in. And then we can talk more about it, but there's out of that aha moment, like, wow, we're going to move there. That just opened my mind up to a whole bunch of of potentially positive and negative effects that come.
0: Just make sure I'm I'm grokking this. Mm -hmm. This is a distributed systems problem, fundamentally. anytime you have such a distributed system you have to think about how anything and in this case data is moving through it and i love your example of just how these patterns exist throughout nature and society Um, by the way if you've never played the game mini motorways it's delightful and (laughs) totally what i was picturing when you were describing like how traffic systems mirror these same patterns But aside from the pictures that pop up in my head, if those are the patterns, how do we how do we realize value? I I I do want to double click on this notion of moving like high potential data so that its value is realized, whatever value it's gonna offer in the world. And is that something that you thought about how what what does that mean like what counts as high potential or is there a way to measure that or assess that to understand or is it just there's no there it just it's a mm-hmm. conceptual idea um
1: well i won't say measuring is easy but if 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 you know if you followed it all dave mccrory's work on on data gravity over the years so dave introduced this concept of data gravity that says that applications and and functionality will draw itself to to data by you know a, a something that looks very similar to the, the 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 forms for gravity the physical forms for gravity now what is the thing that generates the gravity and people often think oh it's the bulk of data it's the amount of data but it's not it's the value of the data it is how important that data is to some activity that all this functionality is related to or some organization that is building numerous activities around that data that's the thing that pulls things towards the data in terms of where things process and and you know where the most security is applied and all kinds of stuff are related to data gravity in some ways so If you think about it in those terms, then you think about what happens when you pour, you're on a beach and you pour a bucket of water, like five feet away from the edge of the lake or whatever it might be. Right. And you pour that big bucket of water out and it starts to run towards the lake and the gravity is pulling it down, but it has to work its way through obstacles and, and different find a path to get to where it goes from the potential that it has at the, beginning when it's dumped in that bucket to where it it lands to have the the most value, be part of the value proposition in that way. So a little bit of a stretch metaphor, but the the core idea is that um, that you can think about generating value from data as being that sense of, of gravity, and in that situation, then high potential means um, the data is really useful for generating something of interest, something of use, but it's not in the right location yeah. or it's not in the right form or whatever to do that. And then it's gener- it's only generated value. It's only become valuable if it is then either has been processed or easily is processed by the th- by something that instantly creates something of value for. For its end user, and so so that's the way I look at this. Is you know, there's tons of data being generated all over the place. There's IoT data, there's business data, there's consumer data, and you know, it, we've have all kinds of weird stuff that goes on out there to make sure that that data gets to something that's somewhere that's of value to somebody. But there's not a lot of control by the people or the you know or the owners. Uh, the generators of that data, in terms of how that flows, and, and the argument that I'm making is that as the value of that data is realized, not only will some people open up the flow of data to other parties who can generate value from it, but also uh, there will be demand to to receive data in real time that today people don't look at so much in a real time sense. A good example of that is education data, right? If Right now we look at, oh, you completed a class. So the time frame that you need that data is very, very slow. You're not gonna care if an hour after you complete the class, it doesn't say, hey, I've completed the class usually. But if we're tracking every action that you do that demonstrates experience in a field and that decisions about who should we bring on this team To deal with this customer in this situation are in part determined by who has the best background to handle the problem and who has the time, then the real time information about your schedule and about your background and and all of that stuff becomes really important to your day to day life. And you're going to care about it being available much, much faster related to what you're doing. I think, you know, to look at something that might be really relatable to your listeners, right? If you look at um, logs today, right? So where we've gone with logs is we've gone from, oh, hey, there are these things you can go look at if you're debugging a problem that has all this data that you can go text search or whatever and find what's going on to increasingly watch what's going on in the logs in real time and make determinations about who to send that data and what to do with that data as quickly as you can based on what you see. Now, why is that important? Why, why spend all the money to figure out how to get logs into that more real-time sense of data transfer? Because It's because we can generate tremendous value in, in preventative actions and in being able to resolve an issue in a minimal amount of time by having the signal as soon as we can possibly get it that there's some action that needs to be taken. I remember when I was at AWS and I I would listen in on the operations calls there. And one of the, the, the principal engineers who sort of was helping to lead the call was asking one of the service teams, do we know like scientifically or mathematically, is there a way that we can demonstrate that we're getting that signal the soonest we can possibly get that signal in order to be able to take an action on it, mm-hmm. right? Because the idea that they have is any downtime is hugely expensive. I mean, for AWS, it's hugely expensive. For, for Amazon.com, it's measurably, insanely expensive, right? Like just milliseconds of delay in delivering a screen has millions of dollars of consequence. So they are absolutely very, very, you know, very focused on getting that signal sooner than, rather than later. And we all now are in the situation, and again, this is a natural systems thing, where we want a feedback loop that's very quick. Yeah, feedback loop on an operational feedback loop on the health of the system and the both in terms of performance and availability, and then a developer feedback loop that's related to you know is the functionality uh, a functional you know meeting the definitions of functional, but also b when it's delivered is it actually you know is it actually meeting the need and being consumed by by the end user the way we expect them to consume it. And so those those are the things that I say. You know, high potential is yeah. We you know that data is in existence or can be in existence, can be captured, but just capturing it isn't enough. Getting it to the, where you can take the action on it the fastest is how you evolve the quickest towards the most value that you deliver.
0: Okay, you went you went really where I was going, which is like connecting this, which is the thought I sort of had when when hearing you give this talk at Glucon was this seems really relevant to just the notion of resiliency for exactly what you described, right? The, the faster you can get that signal in and process it into something useful, the the more valuable it is in terms of whatever system you're trying to keep resilient. But I think you're adding another kind of interesting element with just the idea of feedback loop, which comes back to also just the pace of change that organizations are trying to sustain mm-hmm. right now, and this is a pace that's been increasing over the last ten years or so. We want to get better at change, right? And we're going to try to do it in smaller chunks, but but really, really frequently. but you almost can't go faster than your slowest feedback loop.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. you know, and, and in fact, I'll throw one tiny thing out there. I think, all the data when it's generated has value, right? The, 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 it ha- the question is, is how fast does that value decay? Mm. And so if you catch it at the end of that decay loop, then yeah, it's still got value, but it's not as valuable as if you caught it early in that decay loop. Stock market data is always the example that's given really quickly, right? It's super, super, super valuable in the first few milliseconds. And then it has a decay loop from there. It's still really really valuable but the people who are catching it a minute or 15 minutes after that data was generated are not able to do the same things that the people who catch it in those first few milliseconds are able to do with it. Yeah. And so in the same way I think you know all of that data this is the this is the thing is how much data is capturable out there that either you don't do anything at all to attempt to capture or that you, you really are you know capturing and throwing away that apps that would potentially have some value for some particular use case. what we want to do is make it as easy as possible for you to evolve to the point where you realize that value is there and and are able to build the systems that catch that value fast enough. But to your point the, about the slowest feedback loop, which I think super spot on and, and articulated in a way I really haven't heard it, um, your the the biggest issue that you have is, again, it's not valuable until you can take the appropriate action. Uh, and, and in the in the context that we're talking about right now, it's not valuable until you can take the appropriate action with it. And so, how much value you receive in total off of the, the set of data that your system is producing is going to be in part dependent on how much stuff is waiting for that one important piece of data that puts everything together and, res- and results in the appropriate set of actions that have to be taken. And so that's, you're exactly right. Like you, what you're trying to do is deal with constraints, just like with any process, just with the, you know anything else that moves through a series of steps, the flow of data to those things that take those actions and steps, you're trying to resolve as many of the, the constraints as you can in that system by the highest constraint at a time each time you move through it. At some point, you may get to the point where the cost of resolving this issue is higher than the value I'd get out from resolving it, and then you may sit with what you have for a while. But I would argue, if you what, what standards do, and this is the key point and one of the key points in the book, is what standards do is they mean that people build stuff around that standards, and you now automatically have things that already understand the standards, which lowers the cost of integration by orders of magnitude.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? I mean, you go from I need a team of developers to sit and figure out how to hook A to B to, okay, well, some APIs, but my developers still have to figure out how to write all the code that prepares the data in the correct form to send to the API or receive from the API, and how exactly to formulate the URL that's gonna trigger the API, right? But ultimately, if you look at HTTP as a good example, right? there's a million libraries out there today that know how to take HTTP and either form the appropriate information to call it a, a rest URL or whatever it may be, and to receive that data and parse it into the pieces and parts that you can use to either generate value whatever way is display it or consume it in an automated system or whatever it may be. And so, you know, the Flow's kind of tagline is um, in the same way that HTTP connected the world's information and created the World Wide Web, Flow standards as they appear are gonna connect the world's activity and generate the worldwide flow. And you know, I'm not tied to that that term worldwide flow as like a brand or anything. Right? Like it's just the best term we could come up with in the course of writing the book. But the idea that that we make it incredibly cheap to connect this flow of information, but maintain. And this is it's not going to happen until we can maintain provenance of the data, ownership of the data in some way, or at least value or exchange for data. There's a ugh, bunch of problems: security, you know, encryption, all those things, a bunch of problems that have to be solved, but we're on the way. And, but when, when that happens, when people trust saying, you know what, we can point, um, you know, we can point our materials processing prediction software at Walmart's product consumption data flow that we're, you know, paying them a small fee to consume that aggregates data about what's being consumed, then we can then use you know another flow or another database to tell us what materials are out involved in that and then we can make some predictions based on that well consumer consumption has been trending like this and we can do things right but we can do that in a way that's more real time meaning we don't have to do these big data runs and you know and sort of look at the data in arrears by a significant amount we can actually track what's going on in a much more real time, and this is important in a number of areas. I've, I've got some, you know, certainly have, have some experience with where when something went from being overnight to being real time, it changed the math of the and the economics of that activity. And so there's that. That's why you know I think you know connecting the world's activity will be increasingly important over time.
0: Yeah, a couple of thoughts. There's definitely like an element of this that seems like it's accelerated in the last few years with the pandemic and that just pushing even more to be digitized. But I want to also come back to all data is valuable when it's generated, but then you've got to think about the rate of decay and how it's not really valuable until you can take the appropriate action. Obviously, generative AI is a really hot topic. So curious, how does generative AI fit into this notion where obviously like, Things like the recency of the data can have a really big impact on what you could do from a generative AI perspective and how you train a model, whether right. in context or having to do fine tuning. And there's big implications from an engineering perspective, yeah. cost perspective on those types of training approaches that you have to take. But when you think about the, oh, what is that word? The, the half-life of the data feeding in, how are you thinking about how generative AI and and LLM architectures fit with the sort of the flow architecture?
1: Yeah, it's the most interesting thing I've seen in the last probably two months is the data coming out about how ChatGPT is getting less accurate, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And part of that is because you know they, they yes they retrain the model on a regular basis the model picks up some bad habits but it also has something to do with you know that the the immediacy of the data that's being provided is is you know something that's a, that's a challenge is a huge challenge like how do you go get the most immediate data on which to train the data as opposed to you know okay this was data we collected in mid 2022 it was expensive to collect we're going to use this as the baseline for as long as we can. Um, and not saying that that's what, what open AI is doing, but that's sort of the, you know, that's sort of, I think the, the economics of the situation So it's really hard to keep it really up to date. So I, I would argue that one of the things that's going to come out of this is how do we not only continuously generate up-to-date models, but how do we do that in a way that that is really low cost for us to engineer? Like we don't have to do something custom for every source of data that we want to incorporate. We can do something basic. HTTP is great. except with HTTP, you got to go make the request for the data, and you got to follow the links. You got to do all of that. And so there's a whole bunch of processing that happens there. If you could generate a good baseline model, and then have, you know, events coming in that are critical for, uh, for you know, from number of sources that are critical for your kind of baseline learning and your baseline understanding of of the world. And by the way, you could say, hey, anybody who wants to connect data to us in some, you know, here's the format that we're expecting, and here's how you can make that connection. And everybody goes, oh, okay, I already got the software to do that. I just need to point to your endpoint and maybe make sure it's in data format X. That suddenly changes the economics in a huge way. It changes the economics in the sense that now the, the system can be fed data by the community, by, by the economy itself. I always point out to people that the entire reason business software exists is to automate the economy, right? It's to automate, the flow of money. That's why, you know, more and more of it exists and to automate the be or drive the behavior that, that flows money. And so, we kind of you know that's that's kind of the key thing is that is to say okay what if we can make it instead of you know open ai or whoever it is goes out and has to figure out how to go get the data and how to source it and bring it in and in kind of a google spider crawling model what if it was you know we've created some value here people are using us as sort of a central thing here's how you can make sure that you're your data is part of the conversation and can be a part of what action takes place. And you can even protect it so that only certain people can get, you know, direct answers to certain questions or whatever. And only all of this is, you know, this is speculative, but, but the key thing is, is if you can move the data, if you can have the system itself define how, from, from the people who, who have value, potential value who wanna generate value from that data, from those that are looking for data that would generate value for them. If you can make that evolution easier, you're going to create an environment that's much more broad. So I, I believe that the AI push is in turn over time going to drive and even exacerbate the demand for standards around how data can flow. And, and in that situation then flow architecture standards become more important.
0: Yeah, you're thinking quite far out to where you almost have these exchanges of data between parties and obviously there's a lot of trust people have to build up mm-hmm. even within much more localized, but this notion of even even within an organization's trying to just keep within their own environment without having to think about how they're attracting in more data. Just that idea of how do we, to your p- original points, right? Continuously update our models and do so in this, in an economically feasible way. Exactly. What's Because I imagine people are going to be solving, working on trying to solve that problem within their own four walls. And it'll be interesting to see, does that create kind of like a a lot of different solutions to the problem that then have to reconverge into these standards. Once we really get to the point of actually to do this even better, we have to start to move the data between entities because right now just the privacy concerns around what data are we training models on seems really, really high. But I think like-
1: That gives some, I mean, you get some more flexibility in the sense of if, if the data provenance is sort of an agreement between those that are generating the data and those that are consuming the data. Mm-hmm. You actually create an opportunity where <clears throat> those that really want to be like highlighted <clears throat> or be part of the answer to a, a, a prompt um, have the opportunity to say, "Look, here, you know, here's here's you know here's the current state of the world from where I pers- I sit, and uh, please please use it in, in whatever appropriate way." But you also have the opportunity for those that are like look i don't want my data to be consumed in the in the flow, uh, flow of this to to be able to in some ways sort of shut off the flow and it's it's a total gray area but um i think that if if the producer of the data has some say on whether or not they want to send the data to that that to that consumer yeah that creates the economic engine to allow for a, a more trustworthy, more less exploitive way for these models to be built over time. Um, <laughs> Silicon Valley's culture isn't leaning, doesn't generally lean that way, but, but I think our overall culture, in the Western world at least, very much would like, you know, would like to see it be a more transactional basis for sort of saying, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think people don't understand, like, some of their data that they think they should keep private, what value it has if it's public in certain contexts. So, you know, I talked about that education data, and there's other stuff, too, but you don't want it to be misused. And so there's some opportunity to sort of control where data is flowing to, to a certain extent. It's... um, I don't know, but that's, and and there's so much left to be done here. I mean, all I can do is sort of lay out the, the model, the, the, you know, the, for lack of a better term, the climate and the, the, the landscape that's sort of generating this need and this, and this opportunity. Um, But the actual way that it evolves depends on so many things that are, you know, that are, that the form that it takes will not be what I what I wrote in the book, probably. And I write that in the book several times. I'm like, this is my best guess. Yeah. Um, based on what we have today and what's out there today. We could do this if you know these following things were kind of fall into place. But you know, we were talking about earlier about you know, sort of potential to value. Like one area where we already do a lot of real-time stuff is telemetry. And we have standards now that have started to fall into place around operational data telemetry. Open telemetry and 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 all the different processors of telemetry that now know how to speak in that standard, either generate or consume that data in that way. And you have messaging systems and other things that understand how to process that specific data. So Kafka and Rabbit and all those other things are, are more aware of that format. Um, you have things like cloud events that can wrap <laughs> open telemetry in another metadata format that can be used for other purposes. And so when I look at that, I'm sort of like, you know, we don't have one standard, but we have a number of contextual standards that are working really, really well to demonstrate the potential solution. The question becomes when does the economy as a whole, when do the businesses and the consumers and everybody as a whole realize how that mechanism would, would potentially be of value to them outside of the context of that specific? Protocol, right? So outside of the concept of telemetry, hey, if we had real-time operational data about our business operations that we could share with third parties that could help us resolve issues like logistics or whatever it may be, right? How would that make our lives easier and, and cheaper to operate, et cetera, et cetera? And so, yeah, so that's I, I look at that. Like, there, there are definite standards out there for flow. In certain contexts, and the question becomes: I, I still believe a more general standard is quite possible.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's a great point. Where it's, this isn't that within these contexts, right? Operational data being one, how the patterns are are more mature. Maybe that's kind of like a fair way to say it. So, de mm-hmm. facto standards have started to emerge, albeit in these smaller contexts, and so. That's what we're building off of as we encounter new contexts, things like LLMs or encounter sort of new, well, I guess this would still just be a new context, right? When you sort of bridge out of a technical use case into a business use case, you want to have different data participate in that type of flow. So what do you think is kind of like the, any, any one person isn't going to uh, determine a standard, but what are some things that you recommend for folks to kind of be thinking about or to be trying to put in place? I really like how you sort of break this down into almost the, the sort of laws of nature as the foundation so that like as things evolve and change, to your point, it's not going to look exactly like this, but we know it's going to look
1: right. something
0: like this because we've right. seen this pattern before and like these right. fundamental forces of nature that will show up. So I think that's a really useful building blocks for thinking, but what what else do you recommend to folks? Let's keep it kind of within your sort of technical audiences, like how should they be thinking about flow architectures and and sort of pushing those boundaries to realize the value of data mm-hmm. faster?
1: Yeah, so a lot of it happens already in certain ways, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a number of different, say, Apache projects and other open source projects that are about real-time data processing. What I would, you know, what I would argue is if, if you want to be you know, a part of a large system as opposed to a, a fairly well-contained, well-scoped system where the data doesn't flow out of that very much, I would say you should be, you know, stop trying to do peer-to-peer, <laughs> right? Peer-to-peer at large scale has continuously failed, and it has continuously failed in large part because it's not a great natural flow architecture for a large-scale system. Now, I, I, I'm being a little facetious in saying that. There's there's reasons to experiment with peer-to-peer, but don't be surprised when it doesn't work at scale. There's, you know, there the the major cloud providers, you know, I. I talk to them all the time about, you know, one of the things that they could help facilitate is in fact the consistent flow of events throughout their systems. And, and all of them have done a little bit of that in their own way. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, all the serverless stuff is very event driven. And so you have a lot of really cool things you could trigger off of changes in Dynamo DB. You can trigger a lambda that can go, you know, put a message in a queue that could be picked up by you know, by by an application running in a data center somewhere, and you know all of that stuff is coming together fairly well. But I would, you know, I tell them anything that you can do to make that and integration using that to things that are not already your cloud, anything you do along those lines is going to accelerate the ability of that organization to get data to where it's valuable faster, and that's going to generate demand. So. You know, I, I think right now it's hard to say that there's anything that is the standard. That is, you know, but there are some inside track things, right? I think for metadata, for the data that expresses what the event is, where it came from, and and you know maybe where you can find a schema to read it if that's necessary. Cloud events, I think, is the clear inside track on that. And I would I would even say at this point in time, they're they're more or less the winner, although not everybody has seen the value of having that metadata. Yet everybody that does say, "Hey, we need common metadata," for the most part is saying cloud events at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, open a- sorry uh, async API is a really promising element for the APIs to make all of this happen. I'm not convinced yet that it'll be the winner in the long term, only because, um, I, I you know. It, you don't see it becoming the standard for the way you interact with, say, a messaging bus yet, right? They all still have their own APIs. They also have their own approaches. And I would argue that means that we're, we're still looking for something out there that says, hey, how can I consistently connect to a stream regardless of who's producing it and what technology they're using? So there's still a lot, you know, still a lot to be determined there. It could be That something like open telemetry gets adopted outside of its intended use. It could be that it could be that something that comes out of the Apache community ends up being a winner over what's coming out of CNCF, which is where Cloud Events is. It could be, you know, a number, it could be that some government protocol that gets created becomes so important to business in order for it to be able to operate and interact with the government in the right way that it becomes the model that people follow. But I think that, I think, you know, that you asked about the advice earlier, I think, you know, definitely cloud events, if, you, if you're putting metadata around a, any form of payload, then there's really no reason not to do cloud events at this point. But I would say that, um, you know, I'm, I'm really, what I'm really looking at right now, and sort of the, the evolution in the future of where we're going is, is more of these examples of flows that are going outside of a given company to another company. So FAA data, weather data, it's always kind of big examples. Walmart has required suppliers to provide them um, real-time data feeds of of available inventory through a standard that they defined or a, a, a protocol that they defined, right? So there's more and more of these examples that are happening, and where that data is really important. And I think at some point in time, the question becomes... Um, You know, when does it make less sense for everybody to have their own thing and more sense, it's just the cost, the cost becomes much better if we just have some standard libraries that everybody can point at each other and solve the problem. And I think we're still, you know, when I wrote the book three years ago to two and a half years ago, I said it was going to take 10 years and I think seven and a half years sounds about right for, you know, when it becomes a mainstream kind of thing, it's still on that kind of trajectory.
0: Okay. And what you're describing just as parting thoughts here, that idea of how data starts to flow between organizations. I mean, again, this reminds me of how much that happens already on the operational data level with SaaS data and I'll just drop here for the comments for folks, you know, a, a previous episode where we talked a lot about data ops that comes to mind if you want to catch that replay with James from the Snowflake team and and Manaraj from PagerDuty's data engineering team. It it emphasizes how, as we start to depend on these flows of data in more cases, that sort of the data ops and all the data observability and resiliency practices are going to get more important. So Mm -hmm. that's of course, familiar territory here at PagerDuty with the operations cloud. James, I want to thank you for for joining us. This has been really interesting and I think just some great food for thought for folks just thinking about their own systems architecture. And as even in like different use cases, you don't have to be a distributed systems designer to realize that probably some aspect of what they're working on is participating in the flow of data as things get more digitized and that there's probably a lot more room for Unblocking that flow of data and finding out how to realize the value of different data sources faster. Uh, so, thank you. I think this is a lot of great stuff to noodle noodle on.
1: Yeah, I appreciate um, it. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Uh, reminder: We've got Mitra Goswami next week, and Donnie Burkholtz, James. Thank you again, and hope everyone has an uneventful day. <laughs>